Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 5th of October, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Derrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And also we're joined by Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Well, everybody will be delighted to know that Liz Truss was giving her keynote speech to the Tory party conference this morning. Here she is. She's delightful. Uh, there she goes. What do you think of her uh, top? Well, I noticed that she's on the old puff shoulders again, you know, which is a little bit Cossack. I don't know whether she's realised what she's doing here, but that's uh, that's my thought. But it's the upside down pentagram <laughs> yeah, uh, neckline that, that I think is perfect. Uh, but Debbie, you were watching uh, this and uh, well, what are your thoughts? Oh, well, my thoughts are, well, for a start, I think that picture looks as though she's just eaten a lemon. She looks pretty sour in that. What an unfortunate uh, facial pose. But I did did watch and um, apparently it's build a new Britain, taking us into a new era. And whereas Boris Johnson was very Churchillian, maybe Liz Truss is going for Shakespeare because apparently she's going to get us through this tempest. So that's really reassuring. Growth, growth, growth. Deliver, deliver deliver but there was no word of destroy 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 first and apparently she got interrupted i think by uh greenpeace protesters um who kind of barraged their way way in and i believe they held up a flag who said who voted for this so quite a disruptive speech i believe from uh, uh, yes. Liz mistrust the two the two green greenpeace protesters were protesting about fracking uh well at least uh, if reading their lips, fracking was certainly one of the words. Afterwards, apparently, they told uh, PA that uh, uh, they were trying to hold uh, the government to account for its failure to act on its net zero policy. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's that speech was interrupted. But possibly know. it was Macbeth, three witches on a blasted heath. Could be. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on uh, because uh, well, good news. Anybody that was worried about the energy crisis can rest assured that the UK is out there making sure that the Russians don't blow up any uh, British uh, or Norwegian pipelines. So uh, a, an unnamed UK frigate has joined the Norwegian, Norwegian Navy to guard the North Sea pipelines. Um, how are they going to do that, Brian? Uh, I regard this as nonsense. This is a publicity stunt. Um, there's a lot of pipeline out there and a single ship or even a small group of ships are not going to achieve anything. Uh, to somebody who's dedicated and wants to uh, cause damage to the pipelines. But um, who are we worried about? Is this to protect the pipelines from the Americans, possibly? Well, it could be because there's a huge NATO exercise going on at the moment. And of course, there was a huge NATO exercise going on uh, within the weeks before the uh, pipelines were blown up and the, uh, you know, uh, the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up as well. So anyway, uh, this is the Royal Navy making the point from a couple of days ago that the uh, Royal Navy is leading a huge military exercise around the UK. Uh, 11,000 sailors, soldiers and aircrew waging a 12-day, inverted commas, war around the British Isles. Yeah, it's interesting that waging, isn't it? This is, that's, that's the active part of it. it it's not a defence exercise which involves combating. Yes. Yeah. So 20 ships, a handful of submarines and uh, led by seven Royal Navy warships, including destroyer HMS Diamond. It's as well the North Sea. Uh, isn't terribly too, warm. Isn't too warm. Yes. Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, and this, uh, because this is probably one of the most disturbing bits of news that I've seen in the last uh, couple of days. Uh, it's a new decree from the Ukrainians. Uh, and uh, we've got a, a, a Pravda, or at least the Ukrainian Pravda here talking about this. 
uh, Zelensky has approved a National Security Council decision uh, on the impossibility of negotiations with Putin. Um, so they have uh, reinforced the notion that there is no prospect whatsoever of peace talks, uh, no matter, despite the fact that Vladimir Putin, as we reported on Monday's programme, has effectively held out an olive branch for exactly that. Yes, and from things that I've read in the last um, couple of days, uh, this, of course, has been very much the American line that there would be no negotiation with uh, um, this from the official line from the states that there would be no negotiation. Yes. Now, I just wanted to highlight this article from Caitlin Johnson, and it I, th I have to say, I think it's pretty spectacular. So the headline is the narrative that this war was unprovoked prevents peace. Um, and uh, here's what she's saying. The moronic narrative that the invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked poses a massive obstacle to peace because if Putin is just attacking and invading countries solely because he's crazy and evil, it means detente is impossible and he won't stop until he's decisively crushed. As long as the fact that this war has prov was provoked and re remains unacknowledged by the side that provoked it, the same path of de-escalation and detente will look like reckless appeasement of an irrational madman. Uh, and aggressive is, uh, escalations of nuclear brinkmanship will continue to look like sanity. Uh, she goes on to say, the claim that peace is impossible and Putin must be crushed imperils the whole world, even to deliver total victory in Ukraine, brackets pushing Russia back to pre-2014 uh, borders, uh, would easily end up costing millions of lives and trillions of dollars and exponentially increase the risk of nuclear war with no guarantee of success at all. Uh, be an adult and engage your critical thinking. Does a madman who goes around invading countries solely because he's evil and hates freedom sound like a real life human being to you? Or does it sound made up like something you'd see in a Hollywood movie, like something that was concocted by people responsible for controlling the dominant narratives of our society and funneled into your mind using media? Uh, Marvel supervillains have more depth and complexity than the one dimensional characters the Imperial spin machine concocts uh, to represent its official enemies. Uh, and so on. So uh, this is quite uh, quite an article, and just interested in your your thoughts and what you've seen there, Alex. Yeah, I have to be honest that Caitlin Johnson sometimes is overwrought in her writing, and so although I am subscribed to her Substack blog, uh, blog, I have stopped reading it as regularly as others. But you have to give people their due, and she has, uh, as usual, concentrated on what's going on in Western minds. That's her forte. She writes from Australia where they have a pretty bad dose of uh, hysteric anti-Putinism. And uh, I think that it's inarguable in essence what she's saying, that if Putin is, re is reduced, well, first of all, uh, which she didn't concentrate on, Russia is reduced to Putin's war, as we've heard the new prime minister say time and again, and denying the agency of everyone in the Kremlin. Uh, secondly, it reduces them from their, uh, it reduces the agency or visibility of the ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in the Donbass obviously, who spent eight years under the most horrendous fire, and that's why they took the steps they did and called for Russia to intervene. And uh, thirdly, and this is what Caitlin Johnson does pick up on, uh, it's just you know a, a cartoon representation of Putin the villain, um, even discounting that you know there are other power deciders and other populations involved. And uh, yes, that, that, that does seem to be a, a fair point, but I have to say that that is still what the thinking majority uh, not the extremists, but the thinking majority of all the countries around Russia are still bandying about among themselves. Uh, they're telling the West now, quite increasingly uh, in social media and in speeches, uh, look, you can't just balk at nuclear war every time 
Putin, as it's called, invades a country because we have the rights to be free. So you must stand up to it with threats of nuclear retaliation. That, I'm afraid, is still the, the position of dialogue, not just in the extremes, but in, in the centre of most of the countries around Russia. Yes. OK, well, look, let's, uh, let's move on then to uh, Armenia. This is a harrowing still from uh, a video which is so harrowing we cannot show. This is Azerbaijani armed forces executing uh, captived um, Armenian soldiers in cold blood, having surrounded them within undisputed Armenian territory in Armenia proper, nothing to do with the internationally disputed Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh territory. This is, as we've reported a couple of weeks running, uh, Azeri troops having crossed uh, the border, not just a line of control, the internationally recognised border, border into Armenia proper, and doing this to, to soldiers who you might see <coughs> there already crouching on the ground. Um, this is the state of the war, and it does look rather to, to uh, commentators, particularly in Armenia, as though there is deliberate provocation going on here, because the Azeris seem to think that they have a sweet spot of both tacit Russian peacekeepers' support and increasingly uh, open European support because of the dependency on Azeri oil and gas, uh, that they can force this to happen. They seem to be making a big push, and it's been well documented for years that the Azeri president, minister of defence, foreign minister, and many others have said that their ultimate goal is the removal of the Armenians from the region. Yeah, okay. Uh, apologies for the cough there, by the way. Let's uh, move on to this. And this article was published in, on Wheels Online uh, today. So uh, BBC, Jeremy, BBC News' Jeremy Bowen reports bravely from Ukraine as heavy shelling goes on around him. Uh, that was the headline, and that was the image that you can see on screen of Jeremy Bowen lying down. Uh, now, that image is from a while ago, but uh, nonetheless, they've, I'll explain why they've decided to publish it again uh, at the moment. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight, of course, it's Wales online with a love heart for Ukraine. So, so even the, the header of the, of the page is biased straight away. Right. So the question is, was this one of uh, the BBC's embedded local reporters that published this? Uh, this, of course, is Mirror Group uh, that, that has done this. But let's have a look at what the image actually is, uh, because this is the actual image. Uh, and if we look in the top left hand corner there, well, there's quite a bemused Ukrainian, not really sure what uh, Jeremy Bowen is doing. She's standing there with a, what looks like her shopping or something. Yeah. Um, it's a bit... So yeah, she's walked along. She's seen some filming going on, but she's puzzled because a man is lying on the ground and talking to the camera. She's obviously not worried about shelling because she's there. I think she's got one hand on her hip. I think her right arm is is sort of at an angle i think she's almost got it on her hip she's so puzzled as to what she's seeing so so this is this is pure pr propaganda itself in the setting up of this shot is designed to deceive people right so let's look at why wills online was publishing this is because jeremy bowen has published an article in the times uh, entitled in my 38 years at the bbc it's been rare to witness events that can change history this is one now the times article does uh, publish the, uh, the image in its entirety, which in itself is very questionable why they've done that. Because uh, they haven't thought about it. Possibly. I would suspect they had the image, they didn't really thought, think about the significance, so they just published it because it looks good. Well, so anyway, that's why that was published. But we've got to remember who Jeremy Bowen is. Of course, he's been a war correspondent for many, many years. Uh, but we should remember that in March this year, he published this tweet. Uh, where to throw a Molotov cocktail guide for Ukrainian volunteers. Hashtag Kiev shows weak spots in Russian armor. 
uh, viewing hatches and air inlets, and a big image of a sort of infographic uh, which shows where you want to aim for while you're throwing your Molotov cocktails at uh, Russian armor. And uh, well, this is not journalism, Brian, and shouldn't really be the type of tweet a journalist should be putting out. And the fact that it's still on his Twitter feed demonstrates what where his mind is. Yeah, well, the other thing I'll add is that those tactics are standard tactics in any military handbook. So there's nothing special about Ukraine. This stuff has, has been known about and documented since the Second World War. So um, this is making something out of nothing, even from that respect. Um, OK, Alex, uh, let's continue on the disinformation theme and uh, EU Disinfo Lab. Since 2018, Mike, we have, of course, been reporting on the EU's dis disinformation <laughs> effort, uh, sometimes called EU versus Disinfo here, EU Disinfo Lab. Uh, what's their strapline? We gather, we source, we map. Uh, they don't proofread, though. Anna Romero Vicente is a researcher, what a grand title, at EU Disinfo Lab. And she has come out with this piece, the 3F formula of disinformation entrepreneurs make it fast, fake, and famous. And this is part one of her glowing series. It focuses on YouTube accounts. Uh, I think Brian might have some comments here because her first target is I Earl Grey, whom she describes as an English expat, capitalizing the P twice, even though it's uh, correctly spelt with lowercase right there in Earl Grey's own descriptions on his various platforms. I Earl Grey is an English expat living in St. Petersburg. Um, so we're told that he was rescued from <clears throat> irrelevance and obscurity uh, by posting biased videos in support of Russia. Uh, her third target, the second being Gonzalo Lira, who I recently uh, appeared with, she says that he just hopped over from, from uh, misogyny to, uh, uh, to get a new lease of life as a, as a, as a cheerleader for Putin. Uh, this third one interested me because PTE Geopolitics, World Gone Crazy, which has over 22,000 subscribers on YouTube now, I hadn't heard of either. So I think she has more of an axe to grind in calling this uh, a more obscure channel, though certainly not negligible. I hadn't heard of it until last night when its owner messaged me or I replied to an early message and said uh, I would be interested on in going on because uh, I always try, as we all do, to speak with uh, third party channels when we have time. Um, and the, the, the reply I got was, well, I have been had by the EU Disinfo Lab. Meanwhile, what, how do you rate this? So I looked at this and thought it was a very over egged claim. And um, here we are. What uh, Ana Romero Vicente has come up with is here's her level of English. She quotes his biography and truncates it here. I am a young British. Wonderful, isn't it? I am a young British. Um, so, and then she reports um, uh, the owner uh, of the channel, AJ, for the crime of seeking donations so that he can continue the channel. Uh, and he's naughty enough to be anti-NATO, anti-EU and question refugees. Even Boris Johnson's resignation was instrumentalized, that's posh speak for reported on to push pro-Russian claims. But if you tap that once more, um, what I'm particularly interested in uh, is the conclusion that the very nature of the channels makes us at EU Disinfo Lab refer to them as entrepreneurs who found a business niche. So I would say this is uh, depersonalizing or de-instrumentalizing uh, their comment, their right to comment. And we're, we're told that the follow-up in part two uh, will report on people who criminally uh, call themselves journalists and, speak, and truth seekers and news platforms. That will be the focus of her follow-up. So you can see what's going on there. Just one more element to that slide is this. Uh, Alexandra Alaphilippe is the uh, head man at EU Disinfo Lab uh, in the Brussels area. And a particular request from AJ owning that third channel I mentioned there was, do we have any background on him? 
before he became uh, head honcho there. I can't find very much. Uh, so it's alex at ukcolumn.org for details on that. Okay, and sorry, I, I just wanted to ask you there, Alex, was the comment uh, um, of the first of the two slides, was that actually their reporting on I. Earl Grey himself? Yes, it because... was. And they, they say of him, he's, uh, he regularly posts biased videos in support of Russia. Before the war, he was dedicated to producing content about video games. Okay, so well, they, they, just, they've seized a bit of his material, basically. I thought it was important to say, I'm sure I'm correct on this, that he's he's an ex, uh, he's ex British military, um, but he gives very measured commentary with some humour, very dry humour. But it's always based on actual reports, whether they're they're, they're um, written material from uh, Russia or from the US or from. Europe or UK and video reports and uh, from all the editions that I've watched he's been very accurate and astute in his analysis of what's going on but uh, I wonder why there was a empty bracket because they didn't want to reveal that he was formerly British military. Yeah he's, he's been categorized there as a sad gamer and uh, put alongside the equally maligned um, uh, uh, gentleman in Kharkov, whose name has just eluded me, this, the second target there, um, the Chilean American, uh, who is just described there as, you know, somebody who used to bash women uh, and has now found a new target. These, these men are being uh, stripped of any backstory and any experience they have in order to make them appear to be entrepreneurs uh, yeah. leaping on a market opportunity. And this must show us that uh, some people are extremely worried about anybody who's brave enough to get on social media and give factual, truthful information. You've got to have the disinformation lab after you. Yeah, and sticking with disinformation, then let's just bring the Times back on because uh, another spectacular headline from this morning, anti-vaxxers are a global menace who must be defeated. Now, I'm not going to uh, comment on the contents of this in any way, but I just it was just the headline, anti-vaxxers are a global menace that must be defeated because it's a clear effort to sort of tie Putin and anti-vaxxers together. If we look at the kind of headlines that we see in recently, uh, Paul Ryan calls Russia a global menace, uh, or at uh, the Times again, Putin must be defeated on a large scale. We see headlines like this all the time. So putting anti-vaxxers together with that narrative, uh, Brian, is a clear effort to sort of demonize. Yeah. Um, and it's done in, in, a, in a more and more crude fashion. Yes. Yeah, desperate. Uh, They're desperate. Yeah, well, indeed. And sticking with demonization, uh, the Ukrainian hit list uh, continues. This is the one which is uh, from the Center for Countering Disinformation, which is operated under the uh, uh, under Zelensky's National Security and Defense Council. Uh, and it, it has expanded its list. So uh, Helga Zekbarush is at the top of the list, continues to be Richard Black, Ray McGovern, uh, and Harley Schlanger and Diane Sayre. Uh, who else have we got here? Well, that's TJ Coles from the Grey Zone at the top, Kim.com. Uh, and we've got uh, um, um, Roger Waters and uh, I've completely forgotten. Yes, I know that actor, but I yes. can't remember his name. Steven Seagal, yes. yes. But anyway, Roger Waters then yesterday published, uh, or the Rolling Stone was highlighting a public uh, an article that they're carrying, Roger Waters, I'm on a Ukrainian hit list. Uh, he was uh, really uh, highlighting this uh, again in this article, but the response online from the usual suspects was, as you might expect, Alex Elliot Higgins here. Not that we need reminding, but Roger Waters yet again reveals he's totally infested with tanky brain worms. That's a sort of intelligent comment uh, that we might expect from uh, 
the head of uh, Bellingcat uh, with respect, respect to any criticism uh, of uh, the, the Ukrainian government effectively creating hit lists? That's fair enough. And while we're on Bellingcat, uh, there's increasing numbers of uh, people asking where their office is. Uh, I'm not suggesting anything remotely threatening to them, but just out of interest, uh, they're often touted as being Hague-based because that sounds good because of the international cachet. The only registered uh, office I can find for them is the rather swanky Herenkracht in Amsterdam, which is uh, very you know, expensive to rent property on, but I can't say it, see a Hague property. But in any case, they've come over to the Netherlands, having started in Britain, and they get away with the, these hit pieces on people. And the name I forgot a moment ago is Gonzalo Lira. Yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, and just the last two to mention on the Ukrainian hit list uh, website here. Uh, we've got Tucker Carlson, of course, and uh, and of course, Eva Bartlett there at the end. So that that uh, uh, list continues to grow. Uh, but can I just um, interject there, Mike? I, I think a little while ago, I Earl Grey did a did an interview with Eva Bartlett that was uh, particularly, particularly good. Yes, she's she's doing spectacular work. Uh, but Alex, uh, an article from the German press. Uh, well, in fact, a German equivalent to the UK column, perhaps we might describe them. I would say that's fair. Nachdenkseiten, which is uh, plural, actually, it means uh, website or pages uh, that make you think. And there's their strapline is the critical website. Uh, they haven't put a foot wrong, which is quite a feat in the German uh, new media. They haven't had any scandals over misreporting. And perhaps it's because of that that they were trusted by a German civil servant with the leak that follows. The article's by Florian Warweg, who's pictured there. The title is How the German Federal Government is Working on Gleichschaltung of the Narrative. That's the Third Reich era term for making everyone sing from the same hymn sheet by means fair and foul behind the scenes uh, with regard to the Ukraine war. Uh, so this has been going around for a week. A lot of German platforms have picked up on it. And uh, you can, I think on the following slide, have got uh, a, um, a snapshot of something that went live just before uh, the news went out. We were able to coordinate well. This is part one because Varvik himself says there's, a, there's going to be a part two cover-up, part one, uh, follow-up, I beg your pardon, of the cover-up. Uh, part one here focuses on the German power ministries. Obviously, and unsurprisingly, the German interior ministry coordinates the uh, efforts on the narrative. Um, there's lots of screenshots from the original with uh, key passages highlighted in red. There's mention of using six to 14-year-olds as child reporters uh, to make sure that children are um, resilient, where have we heard that phrase before, resilient to disinformation and have the right kind of media literacy. The German Foreign Office, to the, the shock of both the leaker and uh, the journalist Warwick, is openly using outsourced training courses uh, coming from the USA and from London and from German uh, mega corporations and their charitable agencies, the Stiftungen, using them to train people in uh, what to do. And uh, towards the bottom, the leaker says, we're even stooping at, uh, we're not, uh, stooping to uh, getting these children on board, and my conscience can't take it anymore. There should be far more such people, including at the British Foreign Office and agencies, asking their colleagues, even if they don't resign or leak, uh, what on earth justifies this, rather than meekly accepting it uh, in the way that they do. Uh, it is a big shock to the Germans that Deutsche Welle, the equivalent of the BBC World Service or Voice of America, which is tax-funded and has a statutory duty to be independent, it has a dedicated act that set it up that said so, is involved in coordinating with the Foreign Office in just the same way that the British Foreign Office coordinates with media as well, as we reported, mm. on uh, how to present Russia as the only and inevitable source of all narratives in the world that don't align with NATO or the Ukraine.
that is uh, the bottom uh, line of it there, that Russia is uh, the go-to agency uh, for anything that you don't like in the world. Um, and it's, uh, it is quite spectacular, and I don't know whether the Germans will put up with it. Just to follow up to something reported recently on Die Weltwoche, a Swiss uh, uh, title, uh, the um, uh, owner there, who's pictured on screen, um, has uh, uh, produced a very good monologue on uh, the current state of uh, affairs in the world for our German speakers, which a viewer was keen for us to recommend so that all the German speakers uh, who can, who can uh, follow this 40 minutes um, listen to this tour de force on uh, Zelensky demanding that, uh, again, the nuclear uh, umbrella be put up against him so that he can carry on and his government doing whatever he wants, uh, which, of course, Die Weltwoche finds to be nonsense. Okay, I think that takes us. Yeah, to that some takes ads. us to some ads. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, if if you'd like to follow, if, sorry, if you'd like to support the UK column, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share any material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, quick reminder once again of the uh, free Assange Human Chain taking place. Uh, on this coming Saturday on the 8th, uh, starting at 1 p.m. Now, unfortunately, I believe the trains are not going to be running uh, this weekend. But nonetheless, I think people should make uh, as much effort as possible to get there. I'll just add that it's clear that some people are, are worried that if they go to an event like this, they're going to have their facial features scanned by CCTV cameras, and this could put them at risk. Well, of course, this is happening. There's it, It's happening not just in London, and, and around Westminster, it's happening in major cities across UK. So it's up to the individual to make a, dis, a decision about whether uh, showing your views publicly is going to place you at risk. But of course, if we give in to that, uh, it's it's almost sit at home and wait till all the doors close. So uh, our faces are fully visible by the UK column news uh, broadcasts, and we're going to keep doing that. But uh, we know that some people are feeling a little bit nervous. We would say, stand up and be counted. Uh, that takes us to... Well, it the... takes us to another uh, smaller um, gathering, which is um, in Truro on Lemon Quay. And that's Saturday, the 8th of, uh, 8th of October at 12 noon. Uh, Debbie, would you like to tell us a little bit more about this one? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, I'm going along, so if anybody chances to come up and have a chat. I'm very friendly. We'd love to see you there. But this is a keep it cash protest. So we've got Debbie Hicks, uh, Piers Corbyn, Sandy Adams, who I know that a UK column have spoken to also. They're all going to be there in Truro at 12 o'clock on Lemon Key. So it'd be fantastic to see as many of you as possible. And I do realise, yes, there is a train strike, but buses are still working. So all welcome. Uh, and the weather forecast is good, I believe. Yep, perfect. Absolutely perfect for change. Okay, Alex. Richard D. Hall uh, produces very good material at richplanet.net, and some viewers will be aware of that. And he sends out email notifications people can subscribe to. One came in yesterday, and it's very important indeed. Uh, he has put out a 15-minute video, which he script wrote. He actually had a campaign to get the best script, but so he decided to make his own in the end. So. He, got, uh, he, he was very keen to get the, the angle just right. It's called Johnny's Cash and the Smart Money Nightmare. You can find it on the YouTube channel, Richard Hall. Uh, and he's very keen for this to be spread among people who are still 
asleep as to the dangers of digital money, central bank digital currencies, and the control grid that they represent. So do share this uh, more than usual, I would say. Uh, it has uh, a couple watching television and being shepherded uh, rather thoughtlessly into the future that's planned for them, where they stay at home and do as they're told and take the jabs. Uh, it's also being the first Friday of the month today, um, Richard Hall's uh, all-day shop, which is upstairs at the market in Merthyr Tudville, uh, near where he lives now. So if you're in the South Wales Valleys, do make an effort to get to that. He has a lot of material. And as usual, any viewers who can take along UK column flyers, our own, which we don't have very many of, um, but or, or which things that they wish to produce themselves, because we like that kind of get-up-and-go, bring them along, and Richard will stock them to anyone else who visits the stall. Uh, also in mentions, there is a Christian effort called Repent UK. The hyphen, as the, the URL is repent-uk.org, uh, which at the end of the month is calling a weekend of prayer and repentance. And both David Scott and I will be making videos uh, on some of the questions that will be addressed during that weekend. Going on to other mentions, uh, the MHRA, Britain's Medicines uh, Regulator, and we must always add Medical Devices Regulator, um, has, getting, has got another battering in uh, The Conservative Woman, or TCW, by the sterling uh, letter writer uh, Gillian Diamond, who's been writing letters uh, on themes dear to UK Columns Heart for many years. Uh, you can see from the links at the bottom of that slide on screen that there are already five previous instalments in Gillian Diamond's attempts to get Dame June Rain to answer messages, but as Debbie will attest and Sir Christopher Chope MP will attest that the MHRA doesn't like replying to questions. It's coming up for a year since uh, Gillian Diamond started asking what was going on. Halfway through that piece, there is an embedded link to the UK Columns exclusive footage at this stage, it's still exclusive, uh, of the MHRA board meeting. And she's making the point there um, that very few people watch these meetings and that needs to change. Uh, posted below this uh, upload to the uh, the Conservative woman is this interesting comment by John Bull, which was fresh as of yesterday. John says, following the suggestion in UK column at the end of last year, I was one of the 292 to write to the MHRA asking for information on what analysis, if any, they are doing on all the deaths and adverse effects reports. The MHRA rejected this request as being vexatious. We know that's the usual get-out clause of first instance. And you've said before, Mike, people should persevere through that and appeal to the Information Commissioner when they get that fob off. John Ball did. So he's now heard yesterday, that'll be the day before yesterday now, uh, your appeal's been rejected. And the Information Officer uh, apparently ignored John Ball's contention that it would have been very easy and within budget to give the requested information. John Ball is now thinking of appealing to the first tier tribunal, which has to be done without four weeks, but isn't sure whether it would be counterproductive to do so. Uh, either Mike or Debbie, I'm sure, will be keen to uh, give John Ball and others in that category advice on this and any other freedom of information request that runs into the sand at this point. Well, my, my view on this is, is I'll echo uh, a colleague of ours who, uh, yeah. who, uh, who has said for many, many years that if you don't pursue these things to their absolute limit, you're effectively helping set a precedent which allows them to uh, try to wriggle out of these uh, freedom of information requests in the same way in the future. So, so I would just say no matter how frustrating it is or how time consuming it can be in the sense of having to wait for responses and so on, you keep going until you've exhausted every opportunity because... Uh, unless you do that, you're letting them off the hook. Uh, yeah, I, I'd echo that as well. Once once you've started the trail, you stick with it to the bitter end. And if it ends ends up, you go 10 steps and each step you are rejected. That is evidence which can be used in the future. But you mustn't bail out 
before you've done the full procedure that is open to you. Um, Alex again. A final mention from me, uh, fundraiser, that's F-U-N-D-R-A-Z-R, if you're listening in audio only, only now plays host to a new podcast-a-thon and associated fundraiser, uh, which is by Catherine, I think the surname is Watkins, from uh, BCP Wales, Public Child Protection Wales, on the sexualisation of three-year-olds in school, and uh, Lou Collins, our esteemed former colleague at UK Column, uh, who runs uh, Liberty Tactics now. Uh, currently no money in that kitty and that is of course to keep the campaign up uh, to get the uh, very important and hopefully precedent setting judicial review uh, sorted out that children should not be exposed to this material in Wales or anywhere else in the world. Yeah, can we we also add that of course they worked extremely hard in the first podcast-a-thon and they did raise several thousand pounds but everything they do which is through the courts requires funding. So this is worthy of support, I think. Mm. Okay, well, this takes us on to um, the NHS. And uh, Debbie, you've got a segment here before we go back to having a look at the MHRA, but you're looking at where the future for the NHS is. In fact, you're looking at where the NHS is now, except the public hasn't been told. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, for everybody that says that the metaverse isn't for them, I completely agree because the metaverse isn't for me either. However, we are all about to be launched in it. So the medical metaverse is what's coming up. And this is absolutely terrifying. Um, when you look at it, you can see that it's actually it's actually happening now. And it means basically that you're looking at surgical robots, you're looking at metaverse consultation. So it's just a click away. This is this is the hook to get you in. It's just a click away. And everybody seemingly who's anybody is involved in the medical metaverse. So you'll get a digital twin. And we've talked about these before. You know, how are they going to make a digital twin of you? But they are. They're going to make a digital twin. And they're going to put the digital twin in the metaverse and they're going to ensure that all your treatments are going to be carried out, including surgery, planned surgery. They're going to operate on your digital twin. So the healthcare, as we knew it, know it, has gone. It's going to be virtual. It's that simple. And everybody, literally anybody, as I've said again, is involved in it. So you know, even consultations, you'll go for a mental health consultation, for example, um, you'll have a consultation in the med- in the medical metaverse with a company, but the company will have the NHS logo, you just won't know about it. So, you know, this is incredibly worrying. And what the kind of things that we can see that are going to go on in the metaverse are your planned surgery, you'll get customized treatment, Uh, genomic medicine. You can see there virtual organs. I mean, this is just a smattering of what's happening. I mean, I've only, you can see there number 0.6, 0.1, 0.2. There's about another 20 points. But this customized treatment is going to be the way of, of, for the future. In my day, when medical students entered medical school, they used to do a lot of their anatomy and physiology by dissecting dead bodies and that's how they would learn now they're going to be learning in the metaverse so the the one-to-one contact has gone hospitals will be in the metaverse 
everything that you see at the moment with regards to the NHS is just a facade. And worse still, in 2017, even companies like Pfizer started getting involved in the met medical metaverse. And for, for any of you that are familiar with the game Minecraft, which I think is a quite a popular game at the moment, Pfizer have got their fingers all over this game called Hemacraft. And Hemacraft is a, is a game designed within Minecraft to target children with hemophilia. And you can see who they're, they're partnered up with, with there. Um, I think it's the Entrepreneurial Game Studio, Entrepre Entrepreneur World, is it? Game Studio and um, the Haemophilia Association. So Johnson & Johnson are also involved, GlaxoSmithKline are also involved. This is the way forward, folks, you know, the metaverse is where everybody is going to go. The NHS, I'm afraid, hasn't just gone, but it's never going to come back. And those are the bare facts of it. And it's scary, but we need to know what's coming up. And I'll just add in there, Debbie, if I may. And of course, to do this, you need to hoover up data on an absolutely vast scale. Every bit of, uh, of medical data, clinical data, drug data around an individual. And then it becomes very interesting when we see the banks starting to get very interested in this field as well. But let's just move on to the MHRA because, um, uh, uh, Mike, I think you're going to be talking about yellow cards. Yes. So uh, I've got this communication from a viewer uh, yesterday. Uh, Hi, Mike. Is it possible to update your yellow card data as it's a bit out of date? Brackets August exclamation mark. Many thanks, V. Um, well, of course, uh, V is talking about... Uh, the yellowcard.ukcolumn.org website, where we have uh, all the yellow card data that's available so far, uh, available in a searchable form. Um, and of course, uh, she's talking about uh, the fact that the report run date was the 25th of August and the data lock date was 24th of August. Well, we're in October. Uh, and uh, so why hasn't it been updated? Well, the truth is because this is the last data, the most recent data that's available. Um, so here is the MHRA's, the header from the MHRA's uh, PDF document on this COVID-19 mRNA Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine analysis print. Uh, that is the most recent data available. Uh, and uh, Debbie, uh, they had moved to a monthly schedule. We've, we're now over the month. Uh, and despite the fact that there is a, a booster rollout going on at the moment, uh, there's no updates uh, on yellow card data at all from the MHRA. No, exactly, Mike. And and yes, from the 1st of August, we were going to, from weekly updates to monthly updates, which in itself was suspicious. But what's really concerning is the fact that there is no data since uh, virtually the middle of August, because as you quite rightly said, the COVID bivalent jabs uh, were rolled out to the most vulnerable and the elderly. Let's just note that for because we'll talk about that again in a minute, but they were rolled out to the most vulnerable and the elderly at the beginning of September. And let's remember too, the bivalent is meant to cover you for the Wuhan strain, the original Wuhan strain, and the Omicron B4, B5. Well, the Wuhan strain's extinct, so we don't need a bivalent. The fact that we've got no data since these bivalents have been rolled out is extremely worrying. And I'm hearing from doctors that many people that have been vaccinated are presenting again with in inverted commas, COVID-like symptoms. 
So very concerning that the MHRA are not putting out this data and something that we really do need to be pushing for and keeping an eye on closely. Yeah, so I just wanted to make the point that this is not restricted to the UK. Of course, in the United States, similar problems have been uh, experienced with people trying to get adverse reaction uh, data. So uh, have a look at this website, uh, ICANN, uh, and they're saying that the CDD, CDC created uh, vSafe, a smartphone-based program to collect health awareness after COVID-19 vaccination, uh, and that the people who are behind this site uh, had to go to court to get access to that data. They now have access to it, and they've produced a dashboard of that, uh, and uh, that, uh, ac that website is giving access to that dashboard of information. But nonetheless, the point is they had to go to court for it. Um, there's something not right about this. As we've been making well, this point for many months, of it's course. It's coordinated but... not-rightness, yes. which makes it even more not-right. I think this one's Alex with some comments on what's happening in Switzerland um, about adverse reactions. It's just a still that I've taken from a very short video shared widely, including here on Twitter. Uh, on the 21st of September, a doctor addressed a meeting. OK, so you have to uh, understand that these people were self-selected to be interested in the topic, but addressed, it a meet, uh, addressed a meeting with the simple question at the cinema in Vevey in Western Switzerland. Who knows somebody who has suffered adverse reactions after a COVID jab? And you can see, if I'm, my eyes aren't mistaken here, um, Every single hand has gone up there, gentlemen. Yes. Yeah. Well, we know we know that it's real, and this brings us in very nicely to um, contact that uh, Debbie initially uh, had initially with somebody who suffered very badly uh, from the vaccination. A uh, gentleman called Wayne. Let's pop this on screen. Uh, Debbie, take us through this uh, email that Wayne was kind enough to send in. Yeah, well, as you know, we've we've interviewed Wayne, um, as we have also Charlotte and Caroline and others. Uh, but Wayne wanted to update me um, with what was going on. So this is his email. So my latest update is a bit of a farce, as my vaccine damage payment scheme claim hasn't progressed at all, as you'll see. That's a year and a half so far, and double the length of time they quoted me and months ago for it to be completed. Ugh. My doctors have also repeatedly delayed medical reports I need for my pension companies to claim my pension funds I'm entitled to. It's so infuriating. So this is Wayne who has been waiting ages for some kind of reaction from the vaccine damage payment scheme only to receive a letter basically saying, oh, sorry, we need to extract more information. Um, you can see it there. It's probably a little bit too small for me to read, Ryan, I want to read it. I'll read it for you very quickly. Uh, it says, Dear Wayne, thank you for your email to the Vaccine Damage Payment Scheme regarding an update on your claim. I've looked into your claim and can see we're still extracting your medical records information that came into us by disk. Once we have all the information in Word format, we will begin to prepare the records into chronological order. As soon as we're ready to send your claim over to the team of independent medical assessors we will write out to notify you we appreciate your patience now, i'm going to add to this that i actually spoke to the vaccine damage payment scheme uh, on the telephone this morning and um, a very ni nice young lady spoke to me and uh, i was very polite i was quite gentle with her uh, but basically she couldn't really tell me how long it would take to process the claim i did eventually get a minimum 
of six months. I asked who the independent assessors were. Uh, she could only tell me that they were people inside the NHS, but she assured me that they were completely in independent. And the other thing I learnt, which I didn't realise, is that if you pass the threshold, uh, you are regarded as vaccine damage and you will receive £120,000. But uh, she said to me that if you didn't pass that threshold, you weren't going to receive anything. And I, I didn't know that if that in fact was correct. But once again, we had, I think she was quite a young lady, having to face some difficult questions on the phone in order to protect the whole of the MHRA and the NHS system around vaccine adverse reactions. I don't know whether you've got anything to add to that. Well, I mean, yes, um, you have to apparently prove that you're 60% disabled. Now, who sets that criteria down for you to have to prove that you're 60%, you know, not 59%, but 60%? Um, is is what you have to and and, and to be honest with but, you, but sorry Debbie, well, how, is, how not... is that even defined? How do you define that somebody is sixty percent? Does that mean that they can that that sixty percent of their limbs aren't functioning, or does it mean that they can only walk sixty percent of the distance that they that they or forty percent of the distance that they walked before? What? How do you actually define that somebody is sixty percent disabled? Well, that's exactly the sixty four thousand dollar question, and exactly the question that all those with vaccine injuries have been asking what constitutes a 60% disability you know it's it's insane and and you know wayne is not alone after the first couple of vaccine damage payments were made a couple of months ago it's gone very quiet and how can the nhs say that it's independent when it's being held when the uh, the, the uh, assessors are within the nhs that doesn't make sense at all uh, no it doesn't but if you've got a, an anonymous independent assessor i think you can probably make a variety of statements about what the percentage is mike um yeah. alex back to you and some comments i think from germany yes this is by a woman who blogs uh, as nadina rebel.blogspot.com but it's been picked up by report 24 and it's been entitled by them pressing questions for biontech alias bioentech which of course are partner with pfizer in producing comirnaty and variants and the question is summarized by report 24 is why is covid-19 vaccination mentioned in a 2019 corporate report well, it's not quite as clear cut as that headline. I'm not suggesting there's misreporting going on, but the detail is given in this graphic, which was included, if you want to go back there, by Nadina Rebel in her, uh, not freedom of information request, but simple uh, pressing query to Pfizer, which she then circulated, or to, to BioNTech. Uh, the point is this, you can see BNT162, well known, uh, not least if you read Ian Davis's uh, detailed uh, articles on the, on that variant of the of, of the jab on offer. BNT162 is mentioned in the German language annual report uh, as an mRNA uh, category uh, of immunity therapy, and that word has been ringed because it's one of her questions later. And you can see that the uh, status indicators are that preclinical has been completed or BNT162, the asterisk against 162 indicates that this was already the case in 2020 and an unspecified month. And then you can see that phase one of the well-known by most people now three-stage, three-phase clinical trial that produces a vaccine or an alleged vaccine is already underway. 
as of that report, right? So the asterisk is actually mentioned on screen at the bottom right-hand corner as indicating since 2020. So that, that label was given as of that year. Now, if we tap that again, Nadina Ribelt's question number one of three is, how come your company, and I think that's specifically BioNTech rather than Pfizer, was able to develop a therapeutic, a carefully chosen uh, umbrella term, which as, as of late 2019, had already completed its preclinical testing phase, whereas the virus was only uh, 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 only popped up as of December 2019. And there's some extra details for German speakers to read under that, but that's the uh, what's involved is our key question. And question two, I haven't put question three on screen because that's a more general one about timescales for testing, and that can be fudged more easily in the response. But question two is, your corporate report states uh, that this is an immune therapy based on mRNA technology. Could you please explain to me what the difference is between an immune therapy and an inoculation? I am somewhat uncertain on this point since until now I had the impression that these things were not one and the same. So that's quite an important question that's been asked there. And number three, as I say, is about the timescales, but that that's, can, can more easily be, be, be fobbed off. Uh, so Debbie may have a comment on, on that because I think it's an example of what can be done by writing straight to companies, uh, even if the um, regulators that they largely fund uh, stonewall you. No, absolutely. Immune therapy. I don't see anything therapeutic. People call it a gene therapy as well, and I always correct them with the therapy is meant to make you feel better. Clearly, mRNA, it works exactly the opposite. So I'd be very interested in, in that uh, definition. Okay, well, let's uh, just move on a bit. Debbie, you picked up on a very interesting Sky uh, news clip talking about um, Omicron. I had to think about that word. Um, we should all be very frightened. Should we have a look at the clip and then you can tell us about it? Uh, the chief executive of the UK Health and Security Agency has warned that a staggering number of Omicron cases are expected in the coming weeks. Dr. Jenny Harris told MPs that the variant is probably the most significant threat to public health since the start of this pandemic. It's probably the most significant threat we've had since the start of the pandemic. Um, and I'm sure, for example, that the numbers that we see on data over the next few days will be quite staggering compared to uh, the rate of growth that we've seen in cases for previous variants. Trying to prevent ingress of any infections, including Omicron, still remains a key point, particularly when we can foresee a very large wave of Omicron coming through and our health services potentially uh, being in serious peril. Well, so be afraid. What what did you think of this statement, Debbie? Well, you know, I caught it just by chance. And, and since then, I went back to look if I could find anything online or that or Jenny Harris coming out yesterday and saying exactly that. And I can't. But bearing in mind, we've given five million boosters. She's now saying in the next couple of days, we're going to get a staggering amount of information when we've got no information from the MHRA for a start. So I'm seeing, are they thinking about starting restrictions again? Is this the sort of the build up to, oh, we're going to need masks for the winter, we're going to need to social distance? I mean, it's got nothing to do with the bivalent boosters and, and people that seem to be sick at the moment after receiving those, I'm guessing. Well, let's with a bit not of forget. A, a rolling eye expression, sorry. 
Yeah, let's not forget that uh, the Northern Irish government has literally just renewed their emergency legislation for another period. So, so it hasn't really gone away. It's still just sort of sitting in the background, uh, waiting to re-emerge. Yeah, but but apparently the Germans are, are keen to go, Alex. Yes, yeah, speaking of bivalent boosters, we have to remind ourselves that uh, Omicron has subvariants, and the uh, alphanumeric codes that people will be aware of are BA.1 and then BA.1, sorry, BA.4 slash 5. And Die Welt here, comparable a bit to the Daily Mail in how it, it reports a bit more outrage uh, than other newspapers, has behind its pay, paywall the headline, obviously nobody wants the BA.1 jab anymore. Now, thanks to Corona Docs, Corona Documents, we know what's behind that paywall. Here's three extracts from it. Uh, Mikhail Hubmann hadn't expected that so few people would come forward. Uh, in Fürth, uh, in central Franconia, in a municipality of 120,000 people, so it's a city of you know, half the size of Plymouth, only 85 people had come forward as of Thursday for their booster. Second extract. It was uh, particularly the in Ladenhut this time in a different part of southern Germany. It's particularly the original Omicron variant jab BA one, which has been ignored. Some of people prefer to wait for or, or lobby for BA four and BA five jab, uh, which apparently they've been told is is better at protecting against the currently raging variants, uh, and others would uh, have, have come uh, to this man, uh, to, to the office represented by this man and said, uh, I want a newer jab generally. Uh, and he says, of course, um, nobody, this, this is the key quote that's become the headline, of course, nobody wants the BA1 uh, jab anymore uh, because it's threatening to go out of date. And the final extract, which puts more pressure on the health minister, Karl, Karl Lauterbach at federal level, it's not even German level really, because it was all an EU collective bargain, with the producers who are, who are laughing all the way to the bank, uh, Lauterbach's crit facing criticism because just shy of 4 million Moderna doses uh, have been ordered uh, at federal level. And as of uh, late August already, uh, 700,000 doses, 0 0.7 million in the funny German way of reporting that number, 700,000 doses of Novavax had already passed their expiry date. Uh, by late August. Uh, this is something that the health ministry has confirmed. Again, I believe at federal level, but they, 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 the state uh, ministries do have a role there. Um, so <laughs> what are we to make of that? Is it the German uh, keenness to have the the, 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 uh, the newest and latest version of things? Or, or is it perhaps masking by a twist of the narrative that people aren't wanting their boosters at all, even in one of the most uh, narrative compliant health conscious countries in Europe? Yeah, interesting stuff. Everything is opaque, though, isn't it, around this subject? We can't quite get to the... Well, I think we can have a good guess as to what's going on, but the public are presented with opaque information. Debbie, you've been delving and you've uh, started to have a look at, uh, at reports on fatal outcomes here. Sorry, which are, which are here. We'll bring them on screen, surely. There we are. OK, yeah. so... We, sorry, I'll... I'll just read a little bit for you to help out. Vaccine and surveillance of large populations means that by chance, some people will experience and report a new illness or events in the days and weeks after vaccination. A high proportion of people vaccinated early in the vaccination campaign were very elderly and or had pre-existing medical conditions, older age and chronic underlying illnesses make it more likely that co coincidental Adverse events, including those with a fatal outcome, will occur. 
especially given the millions of people vaccinated. And uh, it says here that the MHRA has received 820 UK reports of suspected ADRs to the COVID-19 Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, in which the patient died after vaccination. 1,301 reports for AstraZeneca and 70 for Moderna and 49 where the brand of vaccine was unspecified. So people are dying, but we just don't want to talk about people dying. Well, this is very interesting because actually, if you go back to that um, slide again, on the um, first, on the second paragraph, at the, uh, sorry, at the end of the second paragraph at the bottom, it says several thousand deaths are expected to have occurred naturally, mostly in the elderly within seven days of the many millions of doses of vaccines administered so far. Well, that's a big coincidence, isn't it? Seven days. But this is the coronavirus vaccine summary of yellow card reporting. And whilst we haven't got the monthly data coming forward and we haven't, we've gone from weekly to monthly, they seem to be putting up quite a bit of information on this particular page that's entitled Coronav Coronavirus Vaccine Summary of Yellow Cards. So when you're looking at that and you think, well, they're talking about the most vulnerable and the most elderly dying first, but weren't they the ones that were given the vaccine first to prevent them dying because they were most the most vulnerable? And, and the elderly, um, you know, it's just like a complete nonsense again with the MHRA. And also, they seem to be publishing a little bit more detail about the ages and of, of people that have died. And on the page there, you can see um, that it says that six under 18s have been reported as dying, 49 under 30, 88 under 40, 133 under 50. So we're getting a little bit more data than we were getting just from the uh, weekly and monthly summaries. But many people might not realize that this data has been put up. Now, this for me, the fact that seven young people under the age of 18 have died is enough, six too many to stop this injection immediately. And then you can see that it appears to be that men are more likely to die than women, just very slightly. So this information is actually on the MHRA website. And again, we ask the question of, since the bivalent has been rolled out at the beginning of the September, why is there no monthly data? That's the big question. But it's definitely worth checking in on the MHRA website. And, you know, this bivalent data, you can see there that the total for Moderna deaths, fatal as 70, for Pfizer, 820, AstraZeneca, 1,301. You know, this is what we're looking at and we have no recent data. It's absolutely shocking. So Dame June Rain, I would say to you, we need to speak. So at your earliest available opportunity, I would really value a conversation. Thank you. Okay, and of course, the thing that goes with this is, is who has the ultimate responsibility for the safety of, of the patient. And you've been digging into this, but you've had this interesting email uh, come in where somebody is saying that um, they'd watched the UK Column News on the 26th of September. And uh, they, they're commenting that you, Debbie Evans, had flagged up a screenshot from the MHRA 
and the last sentence said the final responsibility for the clinical care for the patient remains with the healthcare professional. There's another uh, statement in here which I can blow up so people can actually see this. Uh, but this individual is talking about a form that they'd got hold of. Um, and this is highlighting this responsibility and also helping to put um, pressure on the clinicians to pay attention to that responsibility. Yeah, and I'd like to thank Greg very much indeed. Not only he didn't actually email it, he sent this in hard copy and printed it out. So I'm super grateful. And the paragraph, if you're wondering which is the one that he was referring to, was the one that we referred to um, last week from Alison Cave with regards to the health practitioners at the end of the day would be held responsible. And um, Greg very, very kindly sent me the um, UK Medical Freedom Alliance documents as well, which I think um, really need to go in everybody's pocket if they're considering having a vaccine, which I hope nobody would be, in inverted commas I say vaccine. But he highlighted the UK Medical Freedom um, Alliance and, and some amazing work they've done with a, an informed consent form that you can present, literally that you can present um, yourself to the doctor and I or to the vaccinator and I, and I guarantee you nobody will sign that form if you present it to them. So when you ask them and you tell them that this is their legal liability and that they will be liable and responsible for your care and you present this form that the medical um, UK Medical Freedom Alliance have produced I guarantee you they won't want to sign it. So really interesting and important information and things for people to do for themselves and to actually advise people. You know, put this sheet of paper in your pocket. If you're really insisting on going and have a vaccine, ask them if they'll sign it. If they won't, don't have anything. It's that simple. OK, thank you very much, Debbie. As always, the clock is racing ahead. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to put up this uh, a recording of a telephone call where you were calling into a GP surgery. Um, it's very short. We just play it out. And uh, you've got a little bit of comment as to what this shows us about the state of, of um, health care by GPs at the moment. If your call is regarding a life-threatening emergency, please hang up and dial 999. Please may we remind you to wear a face covering when coming to the surgery. Can you please inform the receptionist if you have any COVID symptoms, currently isolating, have received a positive COVID test or waiting for a COVID test result so that we are able to manage your contact with the clinician safely. Also, please be kind to our team. Our staff are working very hard to continue to deliver a service to all of our patients and have recently been subjected to some unnecessary aggressive and abusive behaviour. We run a zero-tolerance policy and we will report all incidents of this nature. As you can imagine, our phone lines are extremely busy, so please bear with us and our receptionist will answer all calls as soon as possible. You are also able to contact the surgery via e-consult for both medical and administration questions. Well, did that give you a warm feeling, Debbie? It's not a very kind message, is it? It really isn't. And, you know, why? Why are we being asked to do all these things? There's no requirement by government to wear masks, restrict, inform, test. So 
the surgeries are making it up as they go along. But what was really what really highlighted the end of the conversation, if you can't get hold of the surgery, go to e-consult. Now, I know that the doctor's surgeries are going, folks, they're going, and they're going to be virtual. 30 million people have already downloaded the NHS app. The NHS app now is the front door to the NHS. So if you're happy to use your NHS app, to access your GP through a private platform. Deregister from your GP, by the way, and re-register with one on the NHS app who happens to have the NHS logo, then fine. But if you don't want that, then what I would suggest to everybody, and please pass this on, is take, if you can, take the app off your phone. And if you can't take it off your phone, do not use it. You know, do not use the app. 30 million people have downloaded that. That's half the population. We cannot afford to use the app. Otherwise, we are literally, well, GP surgeries will be gone quicker than you can blink and they're already disappearing. So my big message is, please don't use the app. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, let's change subject. Um, we started a report on banks uh, on Monday, and let's come back to the Bank of England, and uh, we're just going to take a little, little bit of a tour through the Bank of England and some interesting little questions that pop up. But what better place to start than with Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England? So here's the Bank of England's uh, web page for him: term of appointment 2020 to 2028. So he's in a what appears to be a very secure position. But when I had a look through the little CV there, I was fascinated that what I did not find is any mention of the Bank of International Settlements and the Banks uh, of International Settlements Board. And for those that did watch the news on Monday, uh, this is because when we started to look at this immensely powerful uh, bank based in uh, Switzerland, uh, we can see that on the board, the first name is Andrew Bailey from the Bank of England. Now, do I think that there should have been a declaration on the first page? Well, I certainly do. And I think uh, that that's proven to be correct by the fact that if I choose somebody else, Sir John Cunliffe, who is uh, one of the other, uh, he, he's the deputy governor for financial stability, uh, it declares there quite openly that he chairs the Bank of International Settlements Committee Payments and Market Infrastructures. So um, just a little bit surprising, we could say it's a mistake, it's an error. But of course, the moment we see this sort of thing on the Bank of England's website, how many other little mistakes and errors are there? Well, we can't be too sure. But if we dig in a little bit uh, deeper, we can actually find that we do get some comment about where money has gone or where money is actually coming in. Uh, the little statement here says that the, the Bank of England releases information about expenses, excluding any information which the bank considers confidential at the time. And then it goes on to talk about um, this is travel and claims, but it says that uh, BIS and other credits uh, includes amounts paid by the Bank of International Settlements to the Bank of England in relation to remuneration for BIS directors and for BIS related travel as well as costs recovered from other institutions. So we can see that clearly these two are working together and there's more information which I'm gonna encourage people to go and have a look at. We're back on Andrew Bailey here. We're looking at, at uh, sort of what he's been up to as far as the bank is prepared to tell us. 
Uh, I noticed that there's a little cluster of free lunches based in Switzerland there, lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner. Um, I can't call this a gravy train because I don't sure. know whether there was any gravy served. I don't know whether there was gravy served. Right. But uh, what we can say is that we can clearly see how tight this connection is between the Bank of England and the Bank of International Settlements. But uh, this page from the Bank of England's website starts to show uh, how much action is going on with the uh, Bank of International Settlements. So here we've got a little string of conference calls and these are all over the place. So what, of course, the public doesn't know is what was discussed in these calls, because neither the Bank of England nor the Bank of International Settlements want to tell the public uh, what these bankers are discussing. And this leads me to say, hmm, if we don't know what they're talking about and they're shifting huge amounts of money and gold, could it be that we've got some sort of cartel operating? That might be a bit unkind, but we don't know. Um, so another organization that was shown in one of the um, uh, CVs was this, the City UK. I'd never heard about this. We'll do some more work on it. But it's a group working in the city in order to help the interests of major players in the financial industry and services industry and the banking industry. So here's some names. People can freeze this on screen and have a look. And then we had some other interesting names that came up. Diana Dido Harding. Um, here she is. Now, why should uh, we be interested in her? Well, I picked up that she was on the sorry, Senior Independent Director of Mind Gym PLC. I thought that was an interesting name. But when I went checking, it appears that she's actually resigned from this organisation. So once again, the Bank of, Eng uh, of England appears to uh, be mistaken in the information that it's putting forward. But nonetheless, if we have a look at Mind Gym, we now start to see this, I think it's a very dangerous mix of bankers, money and behaviour change specialists. Um, so there we are with that. And then we had uh, an email which came via Alex and uh, uh, the person Bill said this, hi Alex, not much, sorry, not sure what this means, though it may be of interest. Remuneration Committee, Diana Dido Harding Chair. Well, we've covered that. Then we've got an Anne Glover, and then we've got Francis O'Grady. And Bill says, Francis O'Grady, TUC General Secretary. How on earth can a union boss be a director executive or not at the Bank of England? This is odd. Oh, and Dido Harding, didn't she spend 37 billion on the failed test and trace program? So this is good because we've now got the public asking the right questions. So if we just pop Francis O'Grady up on the screen so we can see the lovely lady. Um, here is her background. She's very big into the NHS. And uh, we're just going to ask the same question. She's supporting the workers, apparently, um, but she's in partnership with the bankers. So where does this take us? Well, let's have a look at a UK column wiring diagram. Very simple. Bank of England, which is apparently under the control of the government, or is the government under the control of the Bank of England? A uh, lot of debate. It's quasi-transparent because you can see some of the activity, but a lot you can't. Bank of International Settlements. Um, what can we say? Well, apparently there's no UK government control over that at all. Uh, it's quasi-opaque. 
is a better way of putting that because they're very onerous on the fact they're not going to make uh, their business public. And then in the middle, we've now got the, the BIS UK hub, which we mentioned with, it seems, no UK government control. But we've got Andrew Bailey sitting both sides of the fence. So, Alex, I'll just throw this at you very quickly. Should we be concerned about this type of activity? Uh, of course, and there may even be statutory or uh, common law based uh, questions of loyalty for Bailey to answer here. Uh, after all, the Bank of England, and to my knowledge, also the Bank for International Settlements, call their boards of directors courts. And there's six centuries of jurisprudence in England uh, on allegiance to foreign courts. I know it's sometimes a question of semantics, what people call themselves at board level, but that is a fact. Uh, you did a few times say Bank of International Settlements, but I won't pick you up on that too hard, Brian, uh, because the Bank of England itself in the material you showed made that mistake. The BIS is uniquely uh, in the world, a bank not of anyone or anything, but a bank for, for, for some, yes. some uh, aim, the Bank for International Settlements. David Scott explained on Monday that the original purpose was interwar settlements uh, of payments made by Germany to the Allies through the Dawes Plan and the Young Plan. Uh, but no, we should certainly be concerned about that because Bailey could be there acting as an agent of a foreign interest. Yes, well, we, we're certainly going to be looking at, at this in more detail. Thank you for the correction. But of course, I've followed the uh, Bank of England's error in the first place. I think we'll leave those two videos, uh, Mike, and, and go straight on. Alex, yeah, just, uh, just two minutes on this, Alex, if you could. Yeah, yes. this can be even quicker. With, a, yeah, with so, a warning for viewers, I think, on this one. Avert your gaze in a moment, I'm afraid. Uh, this isn't from the flesh pots of Amsterdam, much less from the suave diplomatic quarter of The Hague, where Bellingcat may or may not have a subsidiary office. Uh, this is from the quietest county town in the Netherlands, Assen, the county town of Drenthe province. And here the board, uh, as you can see, put slap bang in the middle of the main square, uh, has been covered up with the message, this is not suitable for our children, signed parents. Now look away if you're squeamish, because this is what was on display in the market square. Um, Sodomic orgies, it's, it's never a long hop from bankers to this kind of stuff, is it? But uh, that was one example, and here's another. Uh, this was up on plain display, and... Uh, uh, Hart von Nederland has reported on this. Uh, it's as we we know, Pride is is begins in June and goes on till m later and later into the autumn every year these these days. Uh, and uh, it's reported here that the parents were extremely angry, uh, and they were so restrained that uh, when they put out a press release, the parents who covered up the message, which has now been carted away by the county government, who got the message, they said parents think it is a shame that the uh, either the municipality or the county, the province, uh, are, are being lent, uh, are, are, are providing services to make such photos available in public. They should have known that this would create a lot of rage. And that takes me on to the and finalist, I think. Um, we have, in fact, a poem from the summer, but it can be read out very quickly. This is posted by an anonymous person on Reddit uh, as early as March this year. Vaxi, vaxi, so obsessed, wore your mask and took your tests. Still got COVID, every strain, spike, po spike proteins inside your brain. Short of breath at 24, Dr. Fauci, give me more. Proteins tangle and misfold, amyloidosis taking hold. Swollen heart at 25, thank Moderna, I'm alive. There's no cure for microclots getting worse with every shot. Heart attack at 26, prayed to Pfizer for a fix. Vaxi, vaxi, death is lurking. Doctor says, that means it's working. Died of SADS at 27, sudden adult death syndrome. 
all good vaccines go to heaven. Obituary headline noted, anti-vaxxer dies of COVID. His family is quite upset, but they're alive, at least on net. And they say it's for the better. Without the facts, he would be deader. Okay, very good. And uh, we'll, we'll leave it with this one, maybe. Yes, I won't put on the ham Chinese accent because people have taken me to task for that in the past. After shelling your own nuclear plant, blow your own pipeline up to ensure victory, says Sun Tzu in the unpublished chapters of The Art of War. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, well, what more can we say? Um, Alex and Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. We have to end there. A few people are uh, asking, you know, why we have to move on quite sw swiftly through the news. And the answer is because uh, with extra time, it puts uh, a particular requirement on what we have to do after the news. And therefore, the times that we try and stick to are a good compromise between the information for the viewers and listeners and being able to manage things in the UK Column studio here in Plymouth. Uh, that's all of it from us. Uh, please do keep sending in material. Please get out there and challenge the establishment wherever you see it's at fault in the nicest possible way. The more reasonable uh, you are, the more powerful your approach. And uh, we'll end the news there, but we will uh, be having extra time in just a few minutes. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.